Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Cabaret from 1972 with my wonderful guests, Andrew Johnson and Kyle Cirilla. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and today on the show, I have my friends Andrew Johnson and Kyle Cirilla, and we watched the film Cabaret from 1972. Hi, Andrew and Kyle. How are you? Hey. Hi, Sarah. Glad to be back. So what did you guys think of the film? How'd you feel? I mean, I know you've both seen it before. I, like, forgot how, like, little music there is at some point. It's almost like, it's like, is this a musical or it's more like a, a movie with music? Like a play with music. I loved yeah. it. That struck me this time also. Andrew, what about you? How'd you feel this time? This was probably maybe my fifth viewing. Um, yeah, and I, I love it. I mean, every time. I think it holds up, certainly, um, today. It's a fantastic film. Uh, so, yeah, I always enjoy it. Never get bored watching it. So one of the reasons I chose this film is um, because it's we're recording in June and it's Pride Month. And I feel like this film has like a positive depiction of a gay character and is based on like a gay novel and work of art. So like, yes, Pride. And also Liza Minnelli is, you know, a gay icon, icon obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've never really talked about Liza or Fosse on the show. And Bob Fosse, very famous Broadway choreographer. You should obviously know who he is, people at home, right? I mean, you know who he is. He directed this and he choreographed this. And then um, another reason I chose it too, is specifically with you guys. One, Andrew and I had like a really lovely viewing of this film once uh, during Pride in Chicago about a billion years ago, where we watched this on Osterman Beach together. Do you remember that? It was like this magical yes. viewing. <laughs> and then <laughs> Kyle is our resident like musical uh, musical theater advisor here um, at the show. We always connect on musicals. And then also I chose this because I'm Jewish and this film has a lot of like, you know, uh, a Jewish stuff in it. And yeah. Okay. So anyway, that's why I chose the film. Um, so we're going to do a plot synopsis about this film. If you have not seen Cabaret and you're like, Ugh, what's it about? There will be spoilers. There always are. But here is Cabaret. This film takes place in Berlin, 1931. Um, we meet the MC, who is kind of like a representative of Germany and what Germany will be going through. Um, and he is hosting the cabaret. And we meet Sally Bowles, who is like the lead entertainer at the cabaret, who's absolutely fabulous. And she is serving us like Holly Go Lightly energy from Breakfast at Tiffany's, except it's like the Liza version of that. And um, 
she meets Brian, who is like a more reserved English student studying in Berlin for, I guess he's not studying. He's like doing a project in Berlin for the semester. And um, they become instant friends. They're in the boarding house together. And he's like, oh, I'm going to teach English to earn my living. And she's like, you know what? You can use my room because my room's better than yours if you want to, you know, take your English or do your English classes there. And he's like, great. So they form an instant friendship. And we learn pretty quickly Sally Bowles is like voracious in her appetite for life. Like she loves to live big and she has a lot of sex and she wears fabulous clothes and she's got a big personality. And so when she starts hitting on Brian and he's like, I'm gay, she's like, okay, cool. We're going to be really good friends. And that's great. And um, they both kind of fall for this guy, Maximilian, who's wealthy and he pursues the two of them and kind of hurts their relationship in a bit. And uh, Liza gets pregnant and she doesn't know what to do. And Brian's like, you know what? I'll marry you, even though that might not be the best future for both of us, I'll marry you. And she kind of sees that this wouldn't be the best future for both of them. And so she gets an abortion and uh, he, they remain friends and he goes back to England and she stays in Berlin and kind of embeds herself in the life of the cabaret. And there's like a sub story going on um, about like the rise of Nazism in Berlin that we see throughout the film and throughout the musical numbers, especially. And then there's um, like another subplot between a Jewish woman and a man who originally is like, hey, I'm poor. I just want to marry for money. And I'm kind of a gigolo is the word he keeps using. <laughs> and um, they do fall in love. But she's like, look, I can't be with you because you're not Jewish. And he's like, surprise, I actually am. But I had to hide my Jewish identity to like survive in Germany. And so they do get married, but there is the question of like what's going to happen to them in the future because they're two Jewish people living in Germany in 1931. Um, and the way the whole film ends is after Liza's like big number, her big number that is cabaret, where she's like, you know, when I go, I'm going like Elsie. I'm living, I'm living big till I die. <laughs> um, we see like a mirror back to the way the whole film started. And it's Joel Gray introducing the cabaret the same way he did in the beginning, except this time when we look in the mirror behind the cabaret, we see the audience filled with Nazis. So that's kind of, that is the end of cabaret. That's the film. One thing I did, I love that you mentioned it already was I was watching it this time and being like, wait, did Truman Capote just rip off the story and write Breakfast at Tiffany's? And then I Googled it and it was like, he based Breakfast at Tiffany's off of Charles Disher, which is, I am a camera. And I was like, oh, it was on purpose. I'm glad that you researched it being on purpose because I just was, I don't know if that vibe has ever hit me so strong before, but I got the vibe this time and I didn't look into it. So it is really funny that that was the dynamic that he copied. Because I guess he like kind of like met up with Charles Disher and they're like both gay and he was like older than him and they like, he like respected yeah. him. But I love that thing where it's like, if you fess up to it, it's like, it's like, oh, it's an homage. And if you didn't say it, it's like stealing. <laughs> I, was like, yeah. I was like, oh, it's fine. Because they like, it does really reek of that. Like, just like, I can't think of too many other, it's like the quirky girl archetype that they've created in here. And he's like with the, with the green nails and she's always doing the green nails because she's so quirky. And so she has to go like see her dad and then she has to get like ballet slippers or whatever colors on there. But just the idea of like this iconic character that like has the energy of, Liza Minnelli on a Tuesday. I'm always going to love that kind of story, though. I always love the big, bold, like, female character. And the reason Breakfast at Tiffany's, it's funny that you mentioned it was based, like, on the book of that. Like, 
all of this is based on a book that Christopher Isherwood wrote in 1929 called The Berlin Star. Or no, 1945. It was about his time in 1929 in Berlin. But oh, he right. wrote, not um, I Am a Camera. Yeah, you're right. The Berlin. No, but I Am a Camera was the play version. That's so you're correct. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, no, okay. you're totally yeah, right. Yeah, the play <laughs> I Am a Camera is the play that was based on the book The Berlin Stories that came out in 1945. And uh, there's a whole book that Sam Wasson wrote. One, he wrote a book about Fosse, so this is really interesting now. But two, he wrote a book about Breakfast at Tiffany's from, like, idea and conception in the head to, like, how it played out as the film and how it was, like, the dawn of the modern woman on film. It was one of the first women on film to, like, be a woman that was neither a virgin nor a whore. Like, it's a modern woman who's having sex and we're not, like, judging her for it, (laughs) like, the Mm -hmm. first time on film. So I think that's really interesting because a big part of Sally Bowles' character is, like, her voracious sexual appetite and us not judging it. And another big part of this, I was feeling this time, especially, was that it's so cool that when we watch this film as viewers, we are Brian, and Brian is, like, the gay character. Brian is bisexual, so we are identifying with a gay character and wanting that character to be okay, but also seeing the world through his lens and agreeing with him about the world that he sees. He's the person Mm -hmm. that stands up against Nazism, right? So I think it's cool that the protagonist is gay and that we are on the side of the protagonist. It's not like Mm -hmm. a, the destructive, like what is it? The destructive homosexual stereotype where they're like given a terrible future, right? (laughs) You know, it's like uplifting. Maybe because of his circumstances and things too. He's also like, he's not the flamboyant one. Like he's he's the gay best friend, but she's really like your stereotypical gay best friend. I mean, maybe it's kind of, it's sort of like a Will and Grace thing. Like she's kind of like real quirky and he's just like, I'm a lawyer, you know, it's like, (laughs) <laughs> there's like this odd couple thing going on that like mm-hmm. I feel like there's like you keep seeing you've seen this thing before and and um, yeah. I never really thought of it that way until I saw it this time yeah I think the takeaway that I really got watching this time and probably it's because I was such a big fan of the Fosse Verdon um, miniseries which if anyone hasn't watched it it's pretty amazing um, but I was really kind of looking at the directing I think a lot and and the cinematography of the movie like this this viewing around I mean the lighting of the club like which at times kind of has that dark gritty kind of 70s feel almost but it's not it still holds up today and there's moments where there's musical numbers in the club that are so beautiful with like this soft blue lighting even though it's very dark at times and then you get the contrast with like the scenes in like the German countryside that are sunny and beautiful or, you know, just like the street scenes that have a much different feel, but still feel like the same film. Um, so I definitely noticed that. And then Liza's acting. I mean, it's so good in this movie because there's so many moments where I think a lot of the film is about like kind of the crassness of this era and the crassness of these, you know, this club and these, you know, women that are mud wrestling and, and all of this chaos. But, but like she can pull that, pull off her crassness alongside, you know, her humor and her gentleness and softness and kind of caring side as well. And so like those were kind of the two takeaways, I think, that I noticed like this viewing around. So Andrew, you would agree with the Academy then because everything you just mentioned won an Academy Award. <laughs> yeah, it won a lot, right? It's won the most Academy Awards for a film that didn't win Best Picture. And it didn't win Best Picture because The Godfather came out this year. So I was actually looking at it, realizing how shocked I was that it did win so many awards because The Godfather was nominated, which, you know, The Godfather is obviously considered one of like the greatest pieces of cinema ever. So the fact that this was Mm -hmm. still so well respected 
respected and well honored, I think really says a lot, you know, Fosse won best director and Liza Minnelli won best actress and best cinematography, best editing, like all best art direction, all of those things won um, at the Oscars. So yeah. yeah, I mean, I would concur. Although, what do you guys think of Joel Grey winning when I feel like um, Michael York had a much much more in-depth part, but I guess Joel Grey is the performer. He's the one doing the musical numbers. Um, I don't know. What He's did you guys the only think one that's that? also coming from like the Broadway show and already had yeah. won and like people like, he kind of became a, I don't I'm not a household name, but like kind of became a name because of this. And I just think it's so, you're so drawn to it because it's so specific and weird and like watching it this time, like all this, this, the cabaret scenes, I kind of forgot how, I think because of that, the revival production is so like in my mind, even though I've actually never seen it, because it's so sexy and they're always, it's so, everyone's always sexy. <laughs> it's like, this isn't that very sexy. It's just kind of like gritty and dirty and like body. And like, he's just like that weird little like impish character guy. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, he's like the perfect little metaphor for like that whole thing. And I think it would be hard on like, never having seen anything like that. I think they just ignore him. But yes, it's definitely like not the subtle beauty of Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> Michael York is so good in this. Yeah. He's yeah. fantastic. Like his performance is fantastic and he's so comfortable in his skin. It's like too it's, real. It's real. <laughs> um, and he's so handsome too. Like he's just, there's something about him in this that just shines so beautifully. But then also, again, Joel Grey is really great too. It's just so interesting that a character who doesn't have any real lines as a human is the one that wins the Oscar. He's all, just all performing in the cabaret um, and like doesn't exist outside. He's just like a metaphor. Having that host role and that MC, it is the thread in the film that you come back to and it ties in. And the, the musical numbers are responding to all of the events. And I think there's so many like cutaway moments where, you know, like something will end and then, you know, like they'll, they'll be like, people going crazy on screen and then like a Nazi will be punching someone on the street. You know, it's like, there's so many moments where like there's real life consequences that are sort of imitated in the art and the musical numbers going on that like, he is such a pivotal character to tie everything. And so maybe that does make more of an impact as to like why, you know, he was so, honored at that time. Also, I do want to add in the fact that Joel Grey is the only person to have won an Oscar, a Tony, and I think it's a Golden Globe for the same performance. So he was like really lauded for this specific role. Um, But this role is so important in the telling of this story because he, as a character, the MC, is supposed to represent Germany and what Germany is going through at the time. So when you're like watching it through that lens, you're like, oh my gosh, because it gets worse and worse and worse. I mean, in the beginning of the show, he opens the show for us. You know, he talks about something you touched on, Andrew, too, about how it's beautiful in here. In here, the girls are beautiful. Life is beautiful. Everything is beautiful. Forget about the troubles outside. So we're getting a lot of beautiful things inside the cabaret. We're getting a lot of inclusivity at first. I mean, there are people, like there are drag queens there. Um, and it's not like, you know, a big deal or anything. And our opening song is Vilkoman, Welcome. He sang Welcome in different languages to the audience. Everyone is welcome here. And then by the end of the show, we see the numbers get more and more insane and the numbers get more and more derogatory. And by the end, the last song we see that he performs is the gorilla song, is If You Could See Her Through My Eyes, which is a song for people at home. The MC is singing a love song to this person in a gorilla costume. 
And like, if you could see her through my eyes, like he's describing all the beautiful qualities. And the last line of the song is, she doesn't look Jewish at all. So the whole joke is like, it's not that I'm dating a gorilla, it's that the gorilla's Jewish. Isn't that the bad thing? Um, and I, in the play, I know they changed that from the play. I, I bet Kyle heard this interview too. There was a Broadway interview on like the Broadway station with Joel Gray, where he said it, the line in the play is she doesn't, she's not a Mishkite at all or something like that. And he would try to say Jewish whenever he could, but Jewish people saw it and got offended by it, not understanding or not Jewish people. It was like a Jewish organization saw it and said, you can't have that in there because it's offensive. But I think that's what makes it stronger. That's I think that's point. what makes it, that's the point. Uh, to see how far the Germans got, like how absolutely terrible the place we ended up in, the Holocaust, and how that happened. So to me, that's like essential. And I think Joel Gray, a Jewish person, understood that as well. Right. And I mean, I think the line in the song where this idea of you can't even walk down the street and, so, and hold someone's hands and kind of this like ridiculousness of like someone being, you know, in a gorilla costume as this like metaphor for being, you know, someone that's different that you literally can't walk down the street with someone, you know, it's like, I think definitely queer people, you know, certainly we can, can totally sympathize with that idea and sort of playing up on the ridiculousness of that, that, you know, I think is, it's, it is really a powerful last moment in, in that number for sure. That seems quite ridiculous, but it is really pointed. Yeah. Well, and you just named, picked or said something that I couldn't quite name before now, which is that like this film really does combine like the gay experience and the Jewish experience in in one of like there are gay characters in this who are out and are treated with respect by the filmmakers. Um, but it's also we know at the time like gay people couldn't necessarily be out in 1930s in general. And then it, it's also about like being Jewish and like. I was thinking about this while watching it this time, and I probably think about it every time without even deeply realizing it. But like, I, I as a Jewish person, if I had been alive in Germany at this time, I would have probably been murdered. I mean, my family that stayed in Austria-Hungary instead of immigrating to America was killed in concentration camps. So when I'm watching this wealthy Jewish woman who seems to have everything, even she probably won't survive. You know, even she is being targeted. It's like, it's just so it's so frustrating and i'm sure you both feel the same way potentially like noting the gay experience like it's like it shows kind of both sides of these coins of like isn't this bullshit that people were treated a certain way just for being who they are i think if this movie got like a remake which it doesn't need steven spielberg we don't need to remake this movie um <laughs> i feel like you would get some they would have like some of the persecution of some of the gay people like pop up in there too yeah. just like you know they were there were gay people that went to camps and you know just like yeah there were not as many because it was you know that, there wasn't really a genocide of gay people obviously like there was of Jewish people but like I feel like you would get that because it's almost like it's kind of just there and maybe yeah. that wasn't really happening quite yet but I feel like it's I feel like you get that would get pushed more in the narrative right and I think it's interesting too to think like in modern times you know there's there's a lot of these kinds of things that are like rearing their ugly heads up again and we're thinking well this can't happen in our time or we laugh at it or we make poke fun at it but there's real consequences here um you know like even today and this is like yeah it might might be almost a hundred years after the 1930s when this takes place but we're talking about the same thing still you know and so i think um and, and i think art is really important to like 
the satire and making fun of that's all important, but also to remember like the seriousness of it. And, and probably there were a lot of people that ignored those things at the time or didn't think something could get to a level that it did. I feel like um, that was something that was, this was the first time viewing it maybe from these eyes that I have now, because probably the last time I watched it was maybe before the Trump presidency, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I watched that, I feel like I watched this movie a lot in my teens and then like haven't watched it as many times, like I've seen it a lot, but in the last few years, I haven't watched it as much. So it was really hitting home to me this time, how much all of this is happening again and we're seeing it oh, rise yeah. up again. The aftertaste of fascism is in your mouth still mm-hmm. and it wasn't before. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Like before you'd watch it and be like, can you believe that happened? And now I'm watching it going like, I see Americans reading things that are not true and believing them with their whole heart. And I see all of this hate rising. Like, it's terrifying Mm -hmm. to watch now. The Tomorrow, let's just get into Tomorrow Belongs to Me. Oh my God, Tomorrow Belongs to Me, the creepiest musical number. It still horrifies (laughs) me. Yeah. I just, I, it's hard to watch it. It's very simple, people at home. Let me break it down for you. Tomorrow Belongs to Me. Um, Max and Brian are in the countryside. It's beautiful. Max is kind of like a, if you're a Sound of Music fan, he's kind of like the Baroness, I feel. You get Baroness vibes. Like, it won't really affect me and I'm rich and nothing matters, but life is fun. We'll side with whoever wins. Like that kind of person. Um, But Brian's very much like, hey, fascism is wrong. This is all wrong and this is bullshit. No. And he gets beaten up for it. Anyone that stands up gets beaten up for it or killed for it, as we see in the film. By Nazis. Nazis people up who don't think the same way they do because they think really monstrous things it's really terrible anyway so tomorrow belongs to me we see a young man a young tenor blonde youthful come forward and start singing this beautiful song and then it's slowly revealed that he is wearing a swastika and that this is a propaganda piece and the tone of the song changes and we start to see this violence and this anger throughout the song. And there's a discord kind of in the drums. And one by one, the young people start standing up, angrily singing this song with him. Or it's not really anger, it's like intense fervor. And it's mm-hmm. really haunting and terrifying. And there's like one older man who stays seated who looks heartbroken that it's happening. And then we also see uh, we don't see Michael York and um, I don't remember the other actor's name, the guy that plays Max. They both leave and Michael York's like, do you really think you can control that? That was insane back there. Um, mm-hmm. But it's like just an incredibly haunting number because we know it's to come. And it also mirrors the number we saw earlier at the cabaret where um, they, were, they were doing like some sort of sexy German folk dance that had slaps in it and they were jokingly slapping each other around and it's sexy but then they're cutting to the real owner of the club who kicked the nazis out completely being brutalized and beaten by the nazis so it's like that's like what's happening in germany but then we also see like the final tick the final straw of that happen in tomorrow belongs to me and from that moment forward we understand that the nazis are in power these are not villains who think they're villains they're villains that you know think that what they're doing is is um for a better future and and there's there's they're so wrong in that but it, it is really scary to watch that scene and the fact that it's in this beautiful countryside and very german and and rural and and um you know quite pretty in a lot of ways you know the cabaret is crass and it owns like its sort of raunchiness and it's like openness and all that but this space, you know, you kind of, you're like, oh, that's beautiful, lovely, like, and and you realize actually it's quite the opposite, 
you know. Because I think we're we're not seeing like regular everyday people yet. Like we're in we're in the city. We're in the cabaret. We're meeting like extravagant, like over the top people. So this is when we're seeing like the salt of the earth people, and they are all for this. And that's I think what's terrifying. And especially when we see the change in the boarding house too. When the people we met at the beginning, it was like there's the gay women, and there were like all these people. It seemed like such a loose, fun, friendly place. When we see them start to say stuff like you know like the Nazis are right. You're like, oh shit. When that guy's like, the Jews are communists and bankers. And you're like, but that that doesn't make sense. And he's like, it doesn't need to. I hate them. (laughs) The paper told me that. The paper said. The fake news. Also, before we go on, I do want to say something I was also just thinking right now was tomorrow belongs to me really is that like, it's not about we, it's not about welcome, it's me. It's like how we start doing like America first. Anytime a country starts doing like, when they start doing the me's and the eyes, yeah. that's when shit gets scary. So I was just reveling in like, oh shit, the songwriters really know what they're doing. Good work, Candor and Ebb. Solid work there. They know what's up. Yeah. Also, it's like, this was written originally for the stage and like came out in 1966. Mm-hmm. So Harold Prince, when he was, he's like, directed it and produced it, but also like, isn't like what we think of, like was a artistic producer. And like really, when you read stuff about it, like really shaped the piece and like the whole idea of like the bringing in the, the kind of Brechtian storytelling comment, like the music commentary and stuff is like really like, he's pushing that into that um, and getting candor enough to like create those things with them. But he, the mere stuff that, that was in the original where like they, like at the end, there was a curtain of something that was like a mirror that you saw in the beginning and then you saw it at the end and the whole like Harold Prince idea was that the audience was supposed to see themselves and be like it's 1966 like civil rights stuff is happening like what are you doing kind of thing like it was supposed to be like like because Harold Prince they always said was like if he didn't have like a like a modern hook on something like that's like why it's important now like it didn't it didn't exist so like Sweeney Todd mm. is, has like it's about like the machines are taking over humanity and they're so like, that's why the set is so crazy like that because that was his way into the piece and so like the besides being a Jewish man himself but like seeing what was happening to black people in America then in 1966 yeah. is like making it look at yourselves look at the mirror <laughs> I really like that I didn't know that about it and like yeah let's get into like the play versus the film almost because. The, to me, this film is, it's so fossy. Like it just breathes fossy and I can't imagine it without it. But the fact that it like, th- it was this successful Tony award-winning musical before this with Hal Prince fingerprints, that was a fun thing to say, all over mm-hmm. it. Um, I wonder really how much has changed because the only productions I've seen have been more current ones, which actually have taken on the film. Cause right. I personally, I, based on what I've seen, like I've seen the play performed and I've seen the film. I think the film is better than the play personally. I think it's really pared down and focused and I tend to prefer the story of the young Jewish woman versus like the um, the older couple. Uh, but I guess the young Jewish people story is what's originally in the book. Like I guess the movie follows the book more closely. Oh. But that, that all that being said, the productions that I've seen were more modern ones. And um, I wonder and the way they've ended. And I don't know if this is in the new Broadway one or not. There was a, so people at home, just so you know, there was an original Broadway show in 1966. It won the Tony in 1967 for Best Musical. But then there was a very famous revival, I think directed by Sam Mendes, that came out in 1998. That was a huge hit. And then that same revival reopened in the 2000s, starring Michelle Williams. So that's where we get, that's our cabaret on Broadway history. Um, 
And then I think the new ending, if I'm not mistaken, they they incorporated the new revival incorporated things from the film, but it also changed the ending to be like the MC is now in concentration camps. Like it goes from the MC being in the club to now the MC is being haunted by lights and is in a concentration. Am, am I right about that? It ends where where he's in a concentration camp. I haven't seen the Sam Mendes Rob Marshall one, but like I feel like any production you see is basically doing that nowadays, doing yeah. that version. I mean, and they put in, you know, there's some different songs and stuff in the movie. The smartest thing about the movie is they take away out any book songs. Because, like, the older couple has, like, songs where they're just in the living room talking. And I think, like, I don't know if it's just because of, like, the 70s and we're, like, not really in, like, a golden age of musicals. Or, frankly, if, like, Bob Fosse was just, like, this stuff doesn't work on screen and I haven't figured out how to do it. And, like, you see it again, like, when we get to, I mean, it's a very Fosse-esque piece too but like you get to chicago like chicago and all those pieces have to exist like in her mind on the stage and it yeah. like wins the oscar because there's something about seeing people really break out into the song on on in like the reality of film that is hard and i think Fosse was just like no all these things are going to exist in reality because even even the you know the only song that really happens outside besides whatever liza's playing on her uh, record player is you know the, the the creepy hitler youth singing in in the, the mm-hmm. field but that's like it's still a real piece that's not like you know they're not singing about there's their even a stage there with the band and everything at this you they're know they're all singing in reality and so right. i think that's the that's the genius of making it like kind of like said before like making it a movie with music i think is what really like cements it and makes it a stronger piece for like a historical film so that was a a thought that i had was like is this really a musical because musicals further the plot through music and i ended up deciding that yes it was because since the music is mirroring the action happening in real life it needs those songs to enhance this story but also there are moments like when liza singing maybe this time she really is feeling those feelings and that's one of the moments where i think not only is the mc playing germany but he's playing chaos and like sowing seeds because he sees her being hopeful he's like no we can't have that money and that's when they start getting into money and that, you know so i think the mc and we even see him from afar it's like he's in her head almost because even when we leave to go to the country he'll whisper to the camera money or like we see him through memories mm-hmm. and things like that so he's also almost like chaos driving the plot in different ways um and then in the end when she's singing cabaret we get the sense that this is the life she's chosen now she's gonna go like elsie i keep saying that but you'd have to know the song to get it i guess <laughs> but she's she's decided i'm going to live this life now this is my my life from now on i'm gonna like live until i die which is probably gonna be pretty young <laughs> um, <laughs> and i think in some respects here i think you're, you're totally right where it's like it like hones into a lot of like these kind of like classic movie musical things where it's like it's about show people and we're gonna like do a number that like you know, maybe it doesn't really directly relate to the plot, but now we're actually, we're in modern times, so we're, like, trying to make it for the plot. But then on the other side, it's also, like, a Brechtian, like, piece where it's, like, we have these scenes and then we have these songs that teach you something to the audience that are, like, we're, like, to make sure you remind yourself that we're watching a play because all you people out there with your BFA in theater will, will follow <laughs> me in there. So yeah. it's sort of, like, these two <laughs> weird kind of things coming together that on, on purpose. Yeah. Um that like just works really well. And it kind of catches up on you. Like you start, you don't realize it in the beginning. And like you said, like it's when they get like worse and worse and worse, you realize that like, oh, 
the metaphor of like what this place is isn't just like where she works and it's fun and they're crazy it's like oh this is like what's happening in the world there well and i think how it differs from other musicals is we don't always see the full numbers through because they're so juxtaposed so a lot of times we're i think in musicals you're used to seeing like and this is the full production and that you know we're not cutting to anything else we're focusing on the person singing and the person dancing but this really does cut away a lot but still manages to tell you the story even though it's cutting away and still manages to give you tastes and flavors of things because we don't really ever get a full big production number i was realizing this time like I want to mm-hmm. see Flossie's choreo so bad. And uh, I think the closest to like a full number we get is mine hair, which is my personal favorite number in the whole show. I mean, I'm, I love it so, so, so much, but that's like the only full start to finish musical number we get with full choreo. Everything else is kind of spliced yeah. in. And is yeah. that, I think that's one that is written for the movie, right? It was. Like it's, it's basically <laughs> just so Isaac has a moment because it, it doesn't really there's not the, really the commentary thing besides like the, she's there's this girl here um because yeah. what is it replaced it's replaced i'm so glad you asked it replaced it's don't tell mama what you know uh, so in the the play version sally bowles is british because she's based on a real person like this mm-hmm. book was there were real characters like the chris isherwood character really was a gay man he never had an actual relationship with the sally bowles character but um she really did get pregnant and really had an abortion that was botched it went really badly and she got very sick and what didn't know if she was going to make it or not oh. but he did say like you know i will marry you if you want so there that whole part was like a real thing um but it was based on a british um nightclub singer so right. that character is singing about like don't tell mama what you know like if she asks i'm in a convent and that's actually why they had that convent line later in the piece to do a wink at that song because they mm-hmm. cut it from the show he played it on the record player at one point i heard and i was like are they gonna sing it later and i was like oh wait they don't sing it no, they don't sing it. Mine hair is way better. And Money was written for this, which is shocking because to me, that's like quintessential cabaret. Um, yeah. And I've seen it in play productions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Such a good number. Yeah. Wait, can I tell you guys, this is, doesn't have to do with cabaret, but it's a it's a young Sarah story. When I was 12. You have like a background violins playing right now. Da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> so picture it. It's I'm 12 years old. It's the Marquee Theater Summer Camp in Northville. Um, we, they've chosen to do this number, mine hair from cabaret in our show. And I got picked as the head Liza and we learned all the original choreography, but the night of the show, my chair went missing. We couldn't find it anywhere. And so there's like a crazy long five minute break. Like if you watch the tape, it's a really long break. And then finally we found the chair, we put it on the stage, but at this point, Little poor Sarah was sweaty and super embarrassed that it took so long to find the chair. So even though I had been practicing this number and I was so proud of it and I could do it perfectly, I spent almost the whole number with my chin tucked in and my head down so no one could see that I was sweating. Oh no. So it's but you still were walking in place. That's all that matters. I was doing the kick, the big kicks, and then I was singing and I did the whole thing. Keep your head down. And I, for, for months after, I swear to God, I would perform it. Like I would be like, and that's what I could have done if only people could have seen it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's my Liza Minnelli story. Also, fun fact the year before, I had done the MC part for money. So I know his part in that, and I know Liza's part in mine oh, hair. Nice. And I bet you I could still perform half the choreo because I was so obsessed with it. And I, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize watching too that like so much of what Liza does is just this like all the time. <laughs> like <laughs> all the time. <laughs> well, in mine hair, it's a lot about just moving your leg around the chair and moving your foot and moving and doing a lot of like finger snaps and moving mm-hmm. a, your hand about. 
I cr- you guys, I had it. I think that's the most probably like iconic visuals in the whole. The mine hair choreography, I think, is like the most iconic like stuff in the whole thing. It's like Fosse Cannon now yes. that's gone into the culture in all these different ways. Kind of like it is Cabaret the movie is to mine hair choreography as like Sweet Charity is to like big spender choreography. It's just like it's yes. just like, yeah. or maybe the frug. It's gone into like other places. Exactly. Now. One thing that I think is great about this movie is there's a lot of balance in it. Like it's really tough subject matter. It's very you know, kind of dark at moments and things like that, but there's still like a sense of humor and there's still, there just feels like a lot of balance, which makes it like such a good film and makes you keep wanting to watch and like um, see more of it, you know? And so I think to your point of like not seeing like a full choreo number all the way through, like as if we're watching it on a stage was really intentional and and so smart in Fosse's directing to, you know, cut to the audience or cut to another scene or, you know, like really find a lot of this balance that makes the film not just like you're watching a play on a stage, but is this fully realized, you know, piece of art really that works so well. It's like simple and effective. That's how I felt about a lot of the musical numbers, because there's Mm. nothing like them. They're super unique, but they're not they're not like out of control chaos. Everyone's kicking their legs behind their head. It's like very simple what they're doing. It's just, I don't know, I, effective is the best word I could think of because there is mm-hmm. even that moment where there's like that blue lighting behind Liza and she just curls the fingers of her hand. Like how much we feel that as the audience and how purposeful that was. They just little mm-hmm. touches. Um, I think that's what make Fosse <laughs> and jazz hands. Obviously. But also, like for a Fosse movie, there ain't that much dancing. Yeah, yeah. Like if this is not Sweet Charity, where it's like boom, 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 and we're gonna have a fifteen-minute number and like do all this thing. It's not about. I mean, he created that piece, so it's maybe a little different. Which I love, by the way. Like this is like a film that he made, and it just happens to have some dancing in it. Like yeah. I don't. Maybe he's trying to prove himself as not just the song and dance man or something like he's ide- he's got ideas well sweet charity was a flop the film sweet charity yeah. even though i love it i i get why it was a flop i do but like that movie was a flop and they didn't want him to direct this they wanted like billy wilder and they wanted uh they had like a whole list of people that they wanted gene kelly was on the list they had all these people that were like their experience they've directed musicals although gene kelly directed a flop too because i think hello dolly was a flop at the time so i don't know how accurate this list is yeah. Um, but I'm just saying they had like other people they wanted instead of him. And, uh, I forget who it was. One of the producers really fought for Fosse and was like, Mm -hmm. no, I think you need someone who's going to understand these musical numbers and who can also direct. And I think this is your guy. So they took a chance on him. He was like an obsessive editor and like kind of a perfectionist about a lot of his vision. So I think, you know, some, sometimes maybe with a lot of people that are like that it, it works it can either like work so well or or just not you know but I think he was exacting in his editing and what he wanted out of this and you can really see it's a very particular singular vision even though I like literally have not seen it I think of that Sam Mendes production and it's all the dancing people all the time yeah. and the cabaret is like really just the girls like it doesn't have these other like variety show things but the idea that he just Fosse's like yeah we're gonna have like this mud wrestling part instead of like girls dancing it's just like oh like yeah if, if someone told you to like make a Fosse movie this isn't quite the movie you would make like it isn't sort of canon Fosse and some of those like way you know the things that like we basically like put him in like some box like it's, he's 
he's got bigger ideas than I think we let him on. But do you think it's because he was scared to do that? Like, do you think maybe if Sweet Charity failed and it was such a dance movie that he was like, okay, we're going to maybe do a little less. Maybe we are the mud pit. Everyone likes a mud pit. I would think the other way, like it gave him the courage to do like the big number. Because he's he's in some of those old, old things with, isn't he like dancing around with Debbie Reynolds and stuff? Give a girl a break. He also is like a man like that, like was in movie musicals and came from that world and probably like, you know, which he says he would have been a bigger star if he had like a, a lower hairline. Like <laughs> the big stuff he says, you know, if I had lost my hair, I could have been a star. And so I think there also is something where he probably like has more reverence for that stuff too. And I think that's what he tried to kind of do with Sweet Charity too. Mm-hmm. But he does know how to tell a number through dance because I mean, before this, like let's think about Fosse's career really quick. Oh my gosh. Before this on Broadway, yeah, yeah, yeah. the man choreographed The Pajama Game, iconic, Damn Yankees, um, Bells Are Ringing, he co-choreographed, which I love because I love that musical and doesn't get enough shout outs. Um, he choreographed How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. All of these are Tony winners, by the way. Uh, Little Me, the um, Sid Caesar musical. Then he gets to like what is iconic, uh, Fosse, which is Sweet Charity, Pippin. Um, we get Liza with a Z because of this. Mwah, perfection. And then, I mean, mm-hmm. he's going to go on to direct Chicago. It's like his, that is beyond quintessential Fosti. That's like masterpiece mm-hmm. and like an exercise in simplicity. <laughs> but like clean, yeah. I don't know. He's so interesting because his stuff is so clean, but it's also so, um, not messy is the word, but it's like the opposite of technique. It's like you have to have technique to do it, but it like flouts what good technique is. And I once heard in musical theater camp at the Marquee Theater when we were doing the head Liza right here, that he would take the things he was embarrassed about himself and turn them into like dance styles. The so like slouch. the turned in knees, the slouch, the egg hands, mm-hmm. all of these things were things that he had worked against. The hats because of his hairline. Thank you, Kyle. But I don't know where the jazz hands came from. He is the king of the jazz hand. I don't know what that came from. Oh, just jazz. Yeah. I once heard it's because he felt small, so he wanted to be big, but I feel like oh. he was pretty tall. I When I see him, I think you're not small, but what do I know? I don't know. Anyway. So they, they said that's where the Fosse comes from. His insecurities became his strengths. Fosse. And I think, I mean, you talked about like, it's not like, it's also, it like highlights character. Like it wasn't like, he gets these people like Gwen Verdon to dance. And it's still like, it's very much like, she's still there. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it doesn't like force people into some like box where they're like, it's not ballet where you're like, now you have to do this. It's like, it yeah. highlights kind of the, the musical theater persona person because it's like that's what that's what the musical comedy is about it's about like showcasing these like oddity odd people that's my theory about that's my Mm -hmm. musicology paper i never wrote and it's fun (laughs) to watch and it's sexy also everyone in this film is sexy my god i could not get over it i was like have they always been this sexy and i was just too young to understand except the people in the the best part is except the people in the show besides liza minnelli they're not sexy (laughs) The people who are like pretending, <laughs> trying to be sexy are not sexy. Everybody else in Germany, quite sexy under the yeah. age of 50. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Accurate. Okay. I don't know. Some of those Taylor youth were not that good looking. <laughs> they were pretty frightening. <laughs> on purpose. On purpose. That was accurate. Yeah. I pretty much just meant like Liza and Brian and Max and the main like cast. the main the main cast. Because I was like, damn, the sex appeal here and the thruple of it all. I was like, if they lived in today's world. They could have been a thruple. <laughs> they all had chemistry okay. together, Max and Brian and Liza. I mean, actually, as you said, that I think if I, when I had seen this before, which has been a long time, I was kind of like, oh, it's from the 70s. And they're kind of like, 
you know, making it more, he's like kind of gay, but he's not gay. You know, they don't want to like push it too far. And now I feel like it's almost, which is I probably, that's like me watching this in like the 2000s or 90s or something and feeling sexuality is binary, you know, maybe. And now that I feel like we think about like sexuality more on a spectrum and it actually feels almost kind of more modern that he's sort of like, he never really says the word. He's but you know, and it's like this. And then, yeah, he likes men. He's with, with Maximilian, but he also like there is something going on with him and Liza that like feels kind of real too. Yeah. And I feel like yeah. that's the stuff before that I'm kind of like, oh god, I didn't like buy. And now I feel like it almost feels more modern and like kind of accurate portrayals like our modern ideas of sexuality and stuff of uh, maybe that's how I've evolved as a viewer. But I think that's also kind of like where. It's grown with us, opposed to like against us, which doesn't necessarily yeah. happen a lot. Yeah. Well, you're right because it didn't come out of good intentions. I think you're correct because I think they were afraid of that. They were like, "Well, he has to be bisexual because if he's just gay, we can't have that," you know. So yeah. I think you're right. It did come out of those because I I felt that way too in the past watching it of like, "Oh, are you really telling me you're pulling a chasing Amy? Like he's he can't just be gay. He has to be like, no, you're the one woman for me." Like. Yeah. So, but you're right. Now it feels more fluid, and I don't know that they necessarily planned it that way. But the portrayals do make it. I'm just repeating what you said, basically. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I don't remember is if, and we've you've seen the more like modern version, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he's really like how out they kind of make made him in the original musical because for some reason I thought he kind of wasn't, but I need to do my research. No, I, I remember he kisses. You see two men kissing. I feel. Maybe, but that was when I saw it. That was what happened. Right, but I feel like you're seeing the like Sam Mendes like you're right version. Yeah, where they have like the two, and they have two ladies. Where one of the ladies is a man, which is hilarious, and like more commenting on the story correctly than really what's because it's actually like that's the triangle that's being that commenting on. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up though because I do love in this the juxtaposition of two ladies, one man, but then in real life it's two man, one lady. Like they do have the juxtaposition of that, and. Well, I wasn't going to go here yet, but we're just going to do it. What hit me so hard this time is that Liza is portraying her parents' relationship, kind of, because her dad is Vincent Minnelli. Her mom is Judy Garland. Her dad was famously a gay man who married Judy Garland because he did, like, he loved her, right? But not always in that way. So it's like she's playing her parents' relationship. Didn't she also, like, end up with Peter Allen and also that guy who had the fake, fake face who was very gay? Like, I mean, he had a few gays in her life, too. You're right. She has ended up with gay men as well. Good, Great, yeah. great point, Kyle. Really good point. Yeah. I think her father is Judy Garland's father as well. Um, they, they hinted that, I know, in, like, one of the kind of made-for-TV movies of her that I've seen. Oh, Vincent Minnelli? That's what I just said. Yeah, that's what Sarah said. No, 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 no. No, (laughs) not Vincent Minnelli. Judy Garland's father. Oh! Yeah. Or Gump or whatever. Gump. G-U-M-M. Oh, no wonder we love yeah. her. Dang, Andrew, I didn't know that. We were like, were you listening? Cut us out. Cut yeah. us out being mean. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes, Andrew, that's so insightful. Andrew, wow, you're so smart. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, <laughs> love it. Your generation's there. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh, I think one thing you're talking about the like movie and the and the the play, yeah, or the musical is especially in like I feel like the more the more modern ones you see. And even in like the original, and I think it's in the book, like Sally Bowles is kind of stuck there for a reason because she's not that great. Like she's not supposed to be a star, like 
Liza Minnelli is like on the screen exploding and you're kind of like, how is she stuck here? She could go anywhere. She's amazing. And there's something about like the real kind of character is supposed to be, and I'm probably based on the real woman, is sort of like, she's almost kind of there because she's the personality and everyone loves her and she can kind of get away with like, you know, her antics because she's so quirky and that's she's almost kind of tricked them into letting her be like the star there. Or like here, it's like she, you're kind of like, what is what is keeping her from like yeah. touring the world? And so that I feel like that's the only critique I ever have of this. But I'm like, who doesn't? It wouldn't be as fun. And I like, why would you want to watch it the same way? I feel like, um, but it is the one thing that I'm always kind of like. Ooh. Kyle, I wrote backstory this time. I wrote a backstory because it was bothering me too. <laughs> so I came up with why she was there. <laughs> You're correct. It's it's annoying. And so what I have decided is that so they mentioned her dad's like he's not an ambassador, but he travels. We don't technically know what he does. Do you guys have an idea of what he really does? No. He's probably some sort of like foreign agent that is maybe like mid to upper level, but they're not exactly clear. I mean, I think part of it, you know, it's funny to watch a lot of the scenes as well, because Liza Minnelli, like, you know, she has that very emotional scene where her father writes the short telegram to like save a couple dollars or whatever um, to her that's 10 words or less. And she's all upset about it. But then she's at that dinner party bragging about, oh, I have the most fabulous relationship with my father you know yeah. and so it, it's interesting because she kind of lives in this foreign country and is able to make up this existence that is you know we don't know what exactly it is there's probably it's probably half truth and half lie yeah. um, which is interesting but there's something about that that's both sad and kind of also hopeful and I think that really like also describes her character so much as well I, I think that she's hopeful and that she can, you know, be real at times about the reality of her life, but maybe also imagine this fanciful future as well. And and, and it, there's something kind of phony about it, but maybe like fake it till you make it or, you yeah. know, reinterpret your story, however you want to define that. I do like that at first with us as the viewer too, now that you bring that in, because we are, as the viewer, we're going like, can we trust her? Is what she's saying true? And then when Brian sees her doing it, he doesn't care. And then like Brian, we don't care either. It's what makes her fabulous. We might roll our eyes a little bit. Oh, you know, so, but but you don't mind it, the over the topness and the exaggeration. And even though you know, you know the real truth of it, but it's still kind of, it's, endearing and charming, I guess. And she's shown other behaviors that have made her valuable. She's making up for it in other ways to show she's a genuine person. So even though she might put on this persona, deep down, we know that she's a good egg, right? So we've got that for her. But my my final little, just like, this is what I thought she was doing there, was like, maybe she was following her dad or with her dad. Her dad seems to kind of go on his own. And she's like, you know what? She's only been in Berlin for three months at the top. And I know at the time, Berlin, ironically enough, though we don't think it was like the hub of where creative people were. Like German expressionism is going on in Berlin and all these artistic movements are going on. And it's this hub of like progressive people. So I bet you she's probably like, I want to, I choose Berlin because it's this like chaotic place. And she's always kind of maybe chasing her dad wherever he goes a little bit. Um, but I think in the end, she's choosing her destiny to kind of like die in this lifestyle and in this cabaret. Like, I don't think it's a particularly happy ending for Sally Bowles, which I think is mm. ironic 
that in the musical they have that whole side plot with the two older couple and the whole, the plot is a sad one because it's like an older woman and an older man and I think it's the man that's Jewish and she's like we can't be together because you are Jewish and I am not and it's like oh that's that's sad but I almost think it's more sad the sort of happy ending they give us of like Sally Bowles is cho- choosing the life of the cabaret what does that really mean these two Jewish people are getting married that's beautiful what does that really mean so I think it's really interesting that even though we get the happy ending it's not really really that happy mm-hmm. and the fact that she's letting brian go to do it i just want to put that out there she loves him and she's letting him go and that's what love is and an abortion saves the day thanks for a healthy abortion i wish it was a healthy safe inexpensive abortion because she has a right to choose what she does with her body but anyway yeah that's i mean that's another issue which i didn't even think about which is so prevalent right now too it's like there's so many issues that are coming up today, like anti-Semitism, homophobia, like not having legal abortions, like there's like, you name it, this movie like kind of covers the same struggles that we're dealing with like 50 years later. Oh my God. And so it's like they were dealing with them in the 30s. They're dealing with them in the 60s and 70s and we're dealing with it now. Mm -hmm. My God, will it ever not be relevant? (laughs) When is it? When is the, it must be coming up on the 50th anniversary of this film, I would imagine, right? For the release. Do you know? Yes. I think, isn't that why Lady Gaga and Liza were on the Oscars? (gasps) Oh, shoot. Isn't that the reason? You're right. I can't do math. It's 2022. Andrew's 100% correct. (laughs) That's why they had her on there. They wheeled her out. Yeah. That's why I chose this show for the podcast. It was the 50th anniversary. (laughs) I I specifically. Yeah. And we're and we're also recording on the you know Judy's 100th birthday, so <laughs> 50 and 100. Yeah, it's a two birthday. You're right, Francis Ethel Gum. Happy 100th. Yeah. We love you. <laughs> Dang. Now we just got to find out the release date of Cadbury, so we actually know. But, <laughs> but it's a, it, it makes sense for this date yeah. to be the there date, though. <laughs> well, and it's yeah. funny because we didn't plan this. We, like yeah. I mentioned before, we were gonna. It was no. supposed to be a different podcast episode that went in a different part in the season, and we were, we just happened. To be recording today, it just worked out. It was meant to be. Meant I love to be. it. <laughs> so, do you guys have anything else that you want to add that we didn't talk about yet, or like anything from the film versus the play? I think we covered all the ones that I had. I think the one thing to, to, is like you were talking about because, like, here cabaret the number is like she's almost kind of like taking her autonomy and like she's like yeah like I had some crap happen but like we're gonna move on and in that I don't know what it was in 1966 but. In that modern version, you see now it's literally like, it's like the new um, Mama Rose moment where she like crumbles at the like realization of what's happening to her life, and it's like becomes like, like this like scary cry for help, like losing her like mind moment, which is like crazy effective, and especially when she's like, you know, it's also like somebody who's not like it's traditionally like a singer singer now in the Sam Mendes uh, version, and it's this like now this like very haunting moment that like I think they just did another revival in London yeah. and I saw like on my YouTube was like watch this lady lose her mind while she sings this in a giant theater and I was like I can't do that right now I did do it it was but really sad it's interesting where, like, she doesn't triumph over everything anymore everything is like is like they don't give her like kind of like the happy moment like they do here um whether the end real ending is that um, regardless mm-hmm. and now it's become kind of like this like actor's moment for like a, women of a certain age and Want to, want to play that just, just probably specifically so they can do the English accent and do that role and do that number. It's like Rose's turn, but like win cabaret for a younger woman. Yeah, I think one takeaway to that, I mean, in talking about Pride Month and 
and queer pride and everything. Well, actually two takeaways that, um, that I sort of got from the film. I mean, there is such this sadness when you see this like happy moment of the wedding and this character sort of quote coming out as Jewish, something that he hid previously. And, and like the, the sadness you feel at the end when you see this kind of moment of like this Nazi takeover and knowing that this couple in the early 30s is so happy and like looking for the, their future and the rest of their lives and just knowing what the rest of their lives are likely to be, which is so incredibly sad, even though maybe, you know, with privilege, they're able to possibly leave. And of course, I mean, even looking at Sally Bowles' character as an American and the privilege that she can just get up and move and leave or, or whatever as well. Those are the characters I think I feel for the most, you know, even though we really don't know what anyone's future is going to be exactly, but you, you know, you have a pretty good idea. And I think that idea of just like living authentically at all costs um, and being your authentic self, again, kind of, there's a lot of people that have done that and have, you know, at, at the risk of losing their lives and literally lost their lives. But to to kind of have that like authentic living and to not hide something and, and live in that way, I think is, you know, kind of a more universal theme, not, you know, not just young gay people or, or Jewish people or whatever. Well, and I want to bring it back to Brian's ending really quick if we can, because I think his ending might be the only happy one we get, ironically enough. And what I think is really healthy about that is what I mentioned earlier, there's like a trope in fiction and in um, like fiction literature film where a gay person, if they're gay in the work, they do not get to have a happy ending, right? Something horrible has to happen to them or it has to end sadly for them. And so what I like about this part is that he's the only, he gets to walk away, right? He gets to go back to England, maybe with like richer experience than he had before. I don't know what the future holds for him, but part of me likes to imagine that he like gets to be out <laughs> and like ends up with like a lovely man. <laughs> I don't know what happens for him in the future, but I do think it is really interesting that they've done the opposite of that trope. Cause like, if you think about even the children's hour, right? Shirley MacLaine realizes she's gay and kills herself. Sorry, spoiler alert, but like, it's been out a billion years ago. Get over <laughs> it. Um, you know what I mean? It's just like, no, th that whole like gay people can't have a happy ending here they yeah. get to. And I like that. I mean, it's in, at the time period, and this is being made in the 70s and into at least the 80s, like homosexuality is in the book of like psychological disorders and it isn't taken out until pretty late. Oh. But it's also, I think what's interesting about that too is there are these sort of periods in history where there is kind of like an ebb and flow, which kind of brings home the point of like, you can't take anything for granted. You know, like we, that we do go through periods of history where there's more acceptance of various different groups of people. But then there's like, then there's like laws that come into play that were never on the books before, you know, and, and that make things illegal or there's like rights being taken away that we like have had for so long, like abortion, where it's just like, oh, we've had this for 50 years. Like, why would we think that it would go away? You know, like the future is progress. That's not always the case. And I think you can like look back at a period of like the thirties where someone could write about being gay and their gay experiences. And then the seventies and what does that mean? And what does it mean now to be, you know? And so it's like really looking at this from three different generations, like when the story was like inspired, 
when the movie takes place and then now looking back at it and still see this like similar struggles still and knowing that a lot of it really happened like the the relationship that he had um with the man the maximilian character that was based on a real relationship there really was a wealthy man that came into the life of him and his friend who was the nightclub singer and they really did go on like that little trip together to his house in the country and like they really were both sleeping with him like these were all real things that Mm. were happening so there's this like I guess idea now that things like, oh, homosexual things didn't really happen in the past. And it's like, no, it's always existed. (laughs) It's like, we have it in our storytelling. It's always gonna, you can't erase it. Abandoning a book, it's still there. (laughs) Like, it exists. You know, and I think the other kind of like pride theme that I got from this movie, which I think is relevant today that I just remembered is um, this idea of, you know, a lot of people like we've got gay pride coming up here in Chicago soon and, you know, a lot of people look at the pride parade and they think it's like this vulgar thing and it's disgusting and it's all about just people, you know, half naked walking the streets or whatever. First of all, there is a lot of great work going on by gay people, you know, and these and the groups that march in this parade. And it's not just all about the show of it and the fun and or drinking or doing or partying or whatever. There really is like a message that with all of these people coming together collectively, but that that is what, you know, those that argue against something like this really, what, that their argument is, oh, it's just, it's crass, it's a party. And I think in cabaret, it's kind of the same thing. And if you really look at a lot of the numbers, that's why I think it's so great that there's so much satire in them and commentary that's, you know, either obvious or subtle at moments. Um, that I think is like a like a, a similar kind of reminder that's that's really related in a way to these modern arguments that we have about pride and and just like self-expression. And it's like, you know what? Put yourself out there and have fun because you should take advantage of these moments in life to express yourself and to do that. And so, you know, I think that's definitely kind of a, a similar theme as well. Maybe it's because it actually happened to him and that's why he wrote it that way too but kind of like the reason he kind of gets a happy ending too is he's sort of the only one that kind of like has stood up to kind of voice his oppression and it's sort of like every I, I kind of think of this as more like I can't the word's not coming to me but you know where you're just like oh I'm not political I don't have to worry like and not worry about that it's mm-hmm. like it's gonna come you know it's like they're gonna come for you at some point if you're every if you if you don't and I feel like right. that's sort of like you know what the the cabaret kind of space kind of is too like they're right. kind of just like, oh, we're separate from this world. It doesn't matter. We're, we'll be here anyways. And it's like, well, I don't know how much longer that that's, that cabaret space is going to last in Nazi mm-hmm. Germany. Absolutely. You're saying be a Captain Von Trapp. Don't be a Baroness. There you right? go. Captain Von Trapp <laughs> gets out. He's safe. He has a singing group and a family. Brian <laughs> gets out. He's safe. They both stood up to Nazis and said mm-hmm. the truth. Absolutely. <laughs> that was really smart. I didn't see that. <laughs> um, so before we like head out, I know we have to head out soon, but I just want to shout out the glory of Liza Minnelli. God, we love this woman. Born in 1946, still alive to this day. Some films she's been in. The Sterile Cuckoo came before this. Mm. I haven't seen it, but they showed it at the New Bev, so obviously I want to see it. Um, but she got nominated for an Oscar for that. She won oh. for her performance in Cabaret. You've also seen her in Martin Scorsese's New York, New York, and you've love seen her. Love that movie. I, yeah. I like it, don't love it. I love her in it. So Martin Scorsese musical. Yeah, it has its moments, but 
but I'm I was I was pleasantly surprised the first time I watched it because I didn't expect a whole lot of it. But I, I do like that film. I don't blame you for liking it. I think I thought it was going to be more. It's supposed to be the Martin Scorsese musical. And then you're like, oh, that's not a musical. That's a Martin no, Scorsese. That's not film. what it is at all. <laughs> he sings three songs. She does a Her New York, New York, I think is the best one. I think her version I mean, is better than Frank's. It's written for her, isn't it? Yeah, by Candor and Ebb. Candor and Ebb. Full circle. So that's one thing we didn't really talk about is just like Candor and Ebb just were like, we're just always writing for her, wrote all the specials. They literally wrote the song. Liza with a Z to explain her name, like Liza with a Z, not Lisa with an S. <laughs> she was their muse. Well, and they they're um, first of all they're amazing songwriters, as anybody who knows music knows. <laughs> Do you think? Well, this is going to be a dumb question. Would would what would Liza have been like in Chicago? Do you ever think about that? She did. She it. had done Chicago when. This is the thing I found about Liza Minnelli recently because you're like they're always like she's a Broadway baby. She replaced a lot of people. Like she was in a lot of things you didn't realize. She Tell was me more. Victor I know Victoria, Victoria was one of the There's, I mean, I think they talk about it in the Fosse Vernon and FX, where she comes in for Gwen Bearden in Chicago. Yeah, shoot, yeah. I kind of saves even know the that. show for a little bit. And so, like, she was, and so there was a bunch of things where she has a lot more credits besides just like the rink and. <sighs> um, Flora the Red Menace. Flora the Red Menace and like things that she originated. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. in a, she's, there was more things that she kind of did. And it just, you know, if you don't originate something, you, you don't get an album and people don't know about it. Hmm. Also, just for people at home, Candor and Ebb are incredible songwriters. And if you want to hear like a really good song, Liza won a Tony for her performance in Flora the Red Menace. And it's, I think it's called A Quiet Thing. And it's about like what it feels like to gain success and to get the things you've wanted. And it's like a perfect, beautiful description of this quiet moment of winning. And I love it. And you could listen to it with maybe this time. You could do a song double feature oh, where you yeah. listen to maybe this time I'll win, which they wrote specifically for this film. Well, they didn't write it for this film. I'm so sorry. They wrote it for actually like- a singer. And then in like the, I forget when they wrote it. They wrote it for like oh. some nightclub singer in real life and then used it in this. And it's amazing. And then it's literally like the opposite of a quiet. It's like a quiet thing and the loud, the loudest song that has ever existed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but it's so good. Um, And then Liza has also been in film-wise, silent movie, the Mel Brooks film, which is very fun. Liza with a Z, her special. Oh, it's perfect. Um, The film Arthur, the King of Comedy with De Niro, and then um, which was also in New York, New York. But you also will probably know her from Arrested Development. I feel like that's how most modern viewers know her. She plays then, Lucille too. In one of the Sex and the City movies, she she yeah does that gay wedding, the second one, yeah, oh, the second God. one, yeah. She sings single ladies. She sings single ladies. <laughs> and does a dance to it. Liza has an egot. She's a performing egot winner, and we love her. We love her. Yeah, egot. Okay, so that's her. And then Joel Gray, people at home, you know him also from Wicked. I bet he plays the wizard. So there you go, people at and home. And Joel Gray, I don't remember the age. He came out in his like 70s or something, finally. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if he's yeah. bisexual or gay or whatever. Whatever he is, living his best life. Yes! yes. That's I found amazing. It. Joe Gray comes out as gay at the age of 83. <gasps> Never wow. too late. Yes. Yes, I am so happy for him. Yes, live your authentic life. There you go. I, I like that there are drag queens here, but I wish that they were more like shout it out as opposed to being like, isn't it funny that he's peeing next to a man in a dress or like, you know, like. Mm. I also feel like they're kind of like maybe trans women. You're right, we don't fully know. It almost feel like they're like living, they like refer to them as like, that was the only thing that made me feel a little okay about it was like, 
was that they like were kind of treating them as women and then there was like there was though they didn't have words or couldn't speak in no economy but, but like there was i wrote down one point i was like oh there's like another trans joke where they're like at the booth but they were always at least like referring to her as her and like things like yeah. that but yeah it mm-hmm. was like it was a little bit for jokes Although I did wonder, I know, I think in the musical, from the one I saw, the, the people in the band are men wearing wigs and stuff. And this, the women were actually musicians in, at the club, which I was enjoying for feminist purposes. I was like, yes, women can play the trombone. Thank you for hiring a female band. Um, but yeah, I was wondering that because I think uh, in the original, it's supposed to be men in drag. Doing oh, it. I always thought they were all, it was always supposed to be all women. Uh, oh, and I just shout out to the costumes and the art direction. Oh my God, the costumes are perfect. I want every single item of clothing Liza wears. Her bathing suit, mm-hmm. why do I not have a bathing suit like that? Why don't they make them? Those little shorts were so cute. <laughs> oh, I just wanted all of the wardrobe. I loved it a lot. And it was so descriptive. And then, of course, Andrew mentioned the art direction earlier. So beautifully done, especially we love the word juxtaposition here. The juxtaposition between like the warm tones occasionally in the Kit Kat Club versus like the harsh realities of the real world, plus the fancy rich people. Like we get each each of those vibrancies mm-hmm. beautifully. Um, yeah. So yes, shout out to those things. And then, um, so yeah, let's do Modern Lens. We we kind of brought it up, what doesn't hold up, yeah. what does. I mean, again, we always need to mention there are no people of color in this film, but again, partly because I think in Nazi Germany, I don't know how many people of color were there at the time. Um, I don't know the historical accuracy behind that, but yeah, there's not really people of color. And uh, yeah, if you, I don't, oh, I don't love the pounce moment or storyline. I don't love that like rape is encouraged. (laughs) That wasn't great. That didn't hold up. So there's this part where they're telling Fritz, the guy that wants to date the Jewish lady, um, because he's Jewish, but not telling anybody. He's like, well, I'm not getting anywhere with her. And Basically, Sally Bowles is like, well, pounce on her. You got to pounce on a virgin. And when she, the woman is describing it, it sounds very much like he was raping her. But she liked it. It's not cool. Not cool. Not okay. She did seem pretty disturbed, which I felt like at least it wasn't. She was just like, like she wasn't just like, she was like a thing happened and it was a problem. Yeah. And Sally Bowles Mm. seems to realize what she has done. She kind of like is accountable for actions and is like, oh, I see what my words caused and I didn't realize they would cause that and I'm really sorry and I feel bad about that. We do get that Mm -hmm. sense from her. But yeah, Yeah. I'm not cool with a rape storyline and I'm not cool with someone liking a rape. So I don't know. That doesn't hold up. An assault at least. An assault at least. Or harassment. Mm -hmm. Not good. Um, And then there is that weird number, the Arabian Nights number. Where, like, they're naked behind the curtain, but, like, one of them is getting whipped. And I was like, mm, I hope you're not really being whipped. I hope you're okay. <laughs> what are the work practices here? Are you all right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, apparently, this podcast is a kink-shaming podcast now. So, I don't know. I just wanted her to have consented. I wanted to see her be like, I consent to this naked whipping. <laughs> That's they're just they're all kink out of the pride parade now. <laughs> I just wanted the consent scene. So I can feel safe as the viewer. The whole song. Candor and Epsons song. <laughs> I really like this and I consent to this action. And then... That is the most Candor <laughs> sounding song I've ever heard. I think you're right. Candor and Epsons Legally Blonde. The Candor and version of Legally Blonde? Yeah. Well, I I mean, kind of speaking about some of the like racier moments. I mean, didn't this movie like I thought I'd read it got like an X rating like here, like and in the UK, but then 
they had taken that rating away. And then I'll, like, just to think about like the early seventies and some of the, you know, movies that were being made at this time, I mean, cabaret seems very tame in comparison. So um, it's interesting that just because of, I mean, you know, gay topics or abortion, like all these other yeah. things, I mean, like the fact that, you know, it had such a strict rating for the time is kind of interesting. And this is not that long after production code was lifted, like 68, it's only four years after production mm -hmm. codes lifted. So people are getting really mm -hmm. exploratory. And I just can't believe it would have an X. Like, that's just stupid. Yeah. All right, so now we're, we're on to the fun stuff. Let's see what I, I wrote, fun stuff. Um, I wrote, oh, Joel Grey prop pants. Something that I could not get over this time was how he keeps putting things in his pants and his shirt, but they never fall out the other end. And for two mm -hmm. ladies, he like takes off his clothes and I'm like, well, where'd all your prop stuff go? <laughs> I was just so stressed about all the props that he keeps putting his pants in his shirt. He's magic. <sighs> That's funny. Liza too, cause like in money, you know, she's like getting like, they're putting like the money down their yeah. pants and like in their, but it's like, where does it go? Yeah. Where does it go? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's not falling to the ground. We would hear it clink. I like that they will do these big numbers and then they go to the audience and there's five people in the audience clapping. Like Liza Minnelli sings maybe this time and then there's a love montage and then she's like, and she's in like yeah. this like seven, basically like a seventies halter one piece, but we're going to pretend it's of the time period. And then they're just, she's like done. And then there's like six fat guys clapping. Cause you're just like, that's, that's where you are. You're kind of like, burr, burr. but she moved them. <laughs> They were moved they were. by her performance. How could you not? And Joel Gray did see the happiness. It was like, must wreck, must wreck your joy in the background. Not to like go back, but there was a point where like Joel Gray was like towards the end and like Sally's like waiting to go on stage and he just like goes around and like kind of gropes her. And I was like, oh, okay. Sexual harassment, not cool. It's like the only kind of interaction you ever see with him basically off stage with anyone. And you're just like, oh, he creepy. That whoever this little man is inside of that man is even creepier than you thought. So <laughs> I literally took that as a metaphor for Germany, like groping her and manhandling her and harming her. Like that was what I took it at full metaphor on that one. Sure, why not? Yeah, it's super fucked up that before he goes, she goes on stage, he totally gropes her and then just walks on stage. And she's like, ugh. She's like, bye. Okay. Um, so yeah, there's that. But back to fun things. Back to fun, yeah. back to fun things. Sorry. Some more fun things. Here we go. One of them is Brian has the best quotes. Um, and my favorite one of all of the quotes, hold on, I highlighted it is um so they're about to get in a little fight him and sally bowles and he's like and this is played by the fabulous michael york and he's like you're pretending you're a femme fatale out there you're about as fatale as an after dinner mint and i was uh, like "Ooh, that's sick <laughs> that's a sick comic sick burn sick burn Ooh, that's what i was looking for then when they have that exchange he says to her screw maximilian and she goes i do and then there's a long pause and he goes so do I. So do I. Well, and then she says, you two bastards. And he's like, shouldn't that be three? <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> God, he's so good. <sighs> so there's that. And then um, the upside down kiss I have loved my whole life. I love the upside down kiss. From Spider-Man? The Spider-Man yeah. stole it. And then the OC stole it from Spider-Man. And they're all stealing it from Cabaret. Obviously. And the with the tie and she pulls him back down. I love it. I think it looks pretty and I like it. <laughs> Um, although the candle was stressing me out this time, how her apartment is filled with candles. One, where did you get the money? Two, don't put them on your record player. It will break and you will hurt your records. She's going to burn the place down for sure. <laughs> like She's got green nails. She don't care. Yeah. <laughs> green nails don't care. <laughs> green nails don't care. 
Where do you buy green nail polish? Like, is it, I don't sell a lot of it. I have bought it to look like her sometimes in my heart. But I feel like back then they probably had like clear and red. Yeah, you're right, Kyle. That she had to really hunt for that green. You're correct. It was probably cheaper and that's why she like made it her thing, but then she like owned it. I support yeah. that choice. But yeah, you're right, she had the ballet pink for daddy. To see daddy. Um, but yeah, that's a great point about the green nails. They would have been on the fun list, but I forgot. Oh, I wrote, be a throuple on the fun list because there's no shame in that. And I'm not in a throuple, but you can be. Go for it if that's your thing, <laughs> you know? Totally. I'm not even in a couple. I'm in an upple. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wrote, everyone's sexy. We mentioned that. Um, I wrote, oh, my God, the Dutch shots. Fossey was like, you know what? I, I just want to film everything from below and tilted. Can we do a lot of below tilted? He really, mm. I went away from the mm. mic for that. He loves a Dutch shot. So I wanted to be like, yeah, Fosse. Yeah. It's like we're in the audience. It's like we're in the audience. And then he loves a zoom in and then pan out fast, like as like a dolly shot. Like he loves that. He did so many of lies mm -hmm. and like, we're going to be close in your face. And we're going to zoom out. It gives us movement in the musical number where you're not moving. <laughs> So he loved that. He does cut a lot, but it but it's always right. And I think it comes back to what we were saying about like just knowing the fact that he was like an obsessive editor and would like re-edit things like over and over and over. I mean, you can tell that he's he's like smart about it. It yeah. doesn't feel overused. Oh, it's wonderful. Oh yeah, I'm not criticizing. I like it. In a it. decade, you get like the music video and that's like, that's what the music video is. He has such good attention to detail. I think that's such a choreographer thing. So you can see that really work in this case. My final fun fact, I think, I hope you like. Did you notice that our friend Andrew Johnson was in drag in the corner in the beginning? Did you notice that? <laughs> was I? <laughs> yes, you. I took a picture. I will show it to you. It's like a very German looking like, with the circle glasses? Yes, but it looked like Andrew, kind of. It does look like Andrew. Yeah. Um, right? like that does. I should be that for Halloween. You <laughs> but you apparently are fine for the night. Because at the end, they, they show those people again. The same couple people. So you, you apparently made it through the... I mean, look at you, blonde guy. You made it through the Nazis. You survived the Weimar <laughs> Republic. Congratulations. You made the beginning, oh at least. Yeah. <laughs> the beginning, at least. That's well, funny. we don't know. But I just, I yeah. love that. So I want to share. That's funny. I feel like cabaret is like one of those things. It's like, there's like theater kid history. Like we know about like Weimar Germany because of this. We know about like <laughs> the Great Depression because of Annie. Like they know mm -hmm. about like... Uh, Henry VIII now because of six. Like there's just like these weird, yeah. if you're like a theater kid, you don't have a good sense of history, but you have like little pockets of very specific things you know. <laughs> and this is one of them where you're like, oh, have you know about Weimar Germany and the cabaret culture? Like it's like, you like read a thesis? No, I saw cabaret 20 times. My like fun moment from the movie, which gave me the biggest laugh watching it like this time around was um, there's the scene where they're learning English together. Yes. Um, which is just such a funny scene. And um, um, who's the who's the Jewish girl? What's her name? It starts with Natalia? an N. Natalia? Is it Natalia? Natalia, I think it is. I think it's Natalia. She, she asked the group just like, you know, it's kind of a generic, uh, thing which is are you healthy she goes are you healthy and Liza, Liza just like she just makes a sound in a face like <laughs> I gotta think about that one <laughs> but it's like so perfect it's like too complicated lady for you to know yeah like layers of like reaction and she says nothing yeah. I think they didn't know what to do I feel like they put that they didn't know what to do with that scene 
That's a, that is a weird scene to put in the movie in general. Cause I think they were like, we have to have these two other characters meet and it has to be awkward. How do we make it awkward? Liza. Yeah. And just like broken English of like, how are you? But it's how are you healthy? <laughs> oh, also this is a side note, but you just reminded me of in the podcast, we watched the film, the Palm beach story a while ago and they were having, what are they called? The, the prairie prairie oysters that drink. Yeah. Go. I oh, yeah. forgot because when we were talking about it, I was like, I don't know what that drink is. What is it? Now, obviously, Liza drinks prairie oysters in this, and it's the egg and Worcestershire sauce. Worcestershire, that's hard to say, sauce. Mm -hmm. It's disgusting. Sometimes with mint by accident. Sometimes with mint because it was made in the toothpaste cup. That's charming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kyle, have you ever had a prairie oyster? No. I have had like a cocktail with like a whole egg in it mixed in there. Mm -hmm. Not just egg white, but like the whole egg. Oh, shoot. Very mm -hmm. rich. Um, but I've never just had, I mean, I could we go make one right now. I got, we got bit. Is it just, Worcestershire egg and egg? Worcestershire. everybody, okay, five minute break. We're all going to get an egg. I'll get Worcestershire. <laughs> We're going to eat one on, on the, on the zoom. They don't know. They can't see it. Mm, no? Yum. Ew, it's gross. <laughs> Ew. Uh, it tastes like peppermint. <laughs> also, I should mention at home, Kyle is a, a fantastic cocktail maker. A cocktail, yeah. I don't want to say mixologist. There's a better word. A cocktail <laughs> taste. I, I try. I try. So he's our mm -hmm. resident musical expert and cocktailist. <laughs> you got, um, sometimes you got to get through sound and music in this long. You need a cocktail, okay? So we're going to head into the uh, double feature portion of the program. If you liked this film, check out these other films. I would say other like Fosse quintessential uh, all that jazz, I think, would be really great to watch with this. It's like it's really excellent and mirrored his own life yeah. um, in a very haunting way and has superb choreography. And I would say Chicago would pair really well, too. I would watch that with this. Um, New mm. York, New York, the as we mentioned, the Martin Scorsese musical that's like. Oh, it's really dark. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Victor Victoria, I feel like that's a great example of like friendship. It feels like the comedic version almost of this. Like it has really strong gay themes, just a really solid friendship with a man and a woman being mirrored here. Um, Sweet Charity would be great for more Fosse. And it's like the uplifting version of Cabaret <laughs> if Sally Bowles <laughs> felt okay in the end. And um, I also said Sound of Music if you're in the mood for another like fuck the Nazis, we hate them musical. And Breakfast at Tiffany's, uh, as we mentioned, very similar Holly Golightly vibes. And The Third Man, also World War II era, also a ton of Dutch shots. <laughs> so... That's what I would recommend for this um, for this pairing. Do you guys have anything you want to add? I mean, the first 30 minutes of Sex and the City 2. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Liza with a Z. How could I forget? Obviously, watch Liza with a Z. And Alexis Michelle saying terrific. Liza said terrific in the movie, and I almost like spit out my drink because I was like, like, it's like the quintessential like word you say to like pretend to be Liza Minnelli. I think um, she also says the word darling probably... 37,000 times. <laughs> Darling. Andrew, you do a very good dancing. People at home can't see it, but Andrew does a really good Liza dancing. Um, Andrew said before the FX Bossy Vernon was like really good and also like will make you, I mean, we literally have not said her name enough when you, the, I feel like the thesis of Bossy Vernon was that like Gwen Verdon did a lot more 
to help out Mr. Fossey, who is a genius, but like mm-hmm. he was like maybe not properly credited for the stuff. The part mm-hmm. about specifically about cabaret and like she's like literally getting like the monkey costume like on a plane and there's a whole thing with it like it just is it's just a joy um and then i the only other thing i thought about was if you wanted to have like a charles isherwood night you could watch a single man and you could see kind of like early like what his early life was kind of like and then i mean it's not really completely autobiographical but kind of like old gay man excellent recommendation yeah i concur you're right it is bothersome that she does not get her credit I think it's just like he, they really worked really closely together and we yeah. they just it's always a Fosse show that we say mm-hmm. when maybe it was like I don't know if it's really half hers yeah. but there's there's she's doing more there she's a big part of it big yes of it. thank you for shouting that out and full circle Michelle Williams played Sally Bowles on Broadway when they did the revival and she also played Gwen Verdon and won the Emmy for that so that was a full circle the revival revival the revival of the revival I would say maybe one other film that's um not as related but the film Carol I think is um kind of an excellent uh look at a character that's complicated sexuality in a different time period in our history um you know so I think to know that there are queer people that existed all through history as well and through maybe some more conservative eras like the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. Um, uh, that's kind of a great lesbian take on uh, gay culture in a different in the past. <laughs> What's interesting about that that made it full circle is Patricia Highsmith wrote that. It was called The Price of Salt, as you know. And I think she was both a lesbian and a Nazi sympathizer. Oh, that's interesting. Because huh. yeah, you're like, how can a... you be both of those things? Like, how can you? How, how is that possible? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Crazy. Well, it was lovely having you both on the show. Thank you so much for being on the show. You're a wonderful guest. This was fun. And I'm glad that I like got to see Cabaret again, because even though I've, you know, I, again, I've seen it several times before. It was, it just was like good to see it. And, you know, like in kind of, especially like after watching the whole Fosse Verdon um, series, like I said, I, I think I totally looked at it differently and, and it was just like fun to watch again. And yeah. Now I want to watch Fosse Verdon again and then I watch Cabaret again and then I watch Fosse Verdon again. Well, I'm going to Luke. There's also, I can't remember her name. There's that woman on like TikTok and Instagram where she's like an old Fosse dancer and she's always like she like she'll be like the egg walk and she makes up like fake dance numbers. Baby playing <laughs> with noodles. Yeah. No. <laughs> what was baby what? I think it's baby playing with playing noodles. With noodles. Yes, and you're like that kind of looks like that's a real thing that he did. So I don't know her name, but Google that. Maybe you'll find it. That's a that good is really funny. Era. All right. That is funny. Well, on that note, thank you both for being here. It was wonderful talking to you about Cabaret. Let's go live like Elsie, but maybe a little more healthier. And, uh, and life is a cabaret. And yeah, happy Pride to everybody. Happy Pride. Eat an egg in a cup. Eat an egg yeah. in a cup with Marcia's <laughs> house. We'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guests this week were Andrew Johnson and Kyle Cirilla. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at talkclassictome for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.